Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. This episode of Victor's Children is about understanding Russia today in the context of Russia's war against Ukraine. We're going to be focusing on understanding Russian society. If people who are listening are interested in what uh, the stance of socialists should be in relation to the war, I would suggest you could check out an episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast that I participated in recently, which is called Russia Out of Ukraine and No to NATO 2. But we're going to be focusing today on Russia, and I'm very happy to welcome back to Victor's Children, Simon Ferrani. So, Simon, could you introduce yourself and say something about your background in relation to this topic? Yeah, thank you, uh, David, and thank you uh, for inviting me. Um, I've been involved in in radical politics and socialist politics since uh, I was a teenager, and uh, I started traveling to Russia and Ukraine and other parts of the Soviet Union in uh, the Soviet period, just at the end of the Soviet period. Um, I wrote a, a PhD thesis, which became a book about uh, what had gone wrong between the working class and the Bolsheviks in the early 1920s. And uh, I've continued to follow Russia and Ukraine uh, as a journalist and uh, subsequently as a researcher of energy issues. Um, and uh, the war, which has unfolded over the past 10 days, has come as a great shock um, to people like me who are supposed to understand uh, what's going on. Uh, I didn't expect it, but I'm not alone. I think uh, many, many people uh, who claim to understand Russia and Ukraine didn't expect it. Uh, and it, it, it will force us to, to look at our views and, and look at Russia and Ukraine in a new way. Yeah. And, you know, when you say that many people, uh, most people didn't see it coming, I think that's true from many different uh, perspectives. Um, and people who are trying to make sense of this, certainly in the Anglosphere, if they're listening to the mainstream media, they're not going to find very much there that's useful for understanding Russian society. So can you step back and give us a kind of a quick overview about the shape of capitalism in Russia today, uh, including what the most important sections of the capitalist class are? Yeah. So I think the best way to do that is chronologically, if you like. Um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the country's assets, which had been owned by the state, uh, were quite rapidly uh, brought, not entirely, but uh, largely uh, into the private sphere. And as the economy collapsed in the 1990s, and both Russia and Ukraine suffered the greatest peacetime uh, slump that economists have recorded in the 1990s, and during that slump, uh, the pieces of the um, of the state-owned economy, which did not stay in the state's hands, were picked up by various business groups. And uh, quite often, uh, these groups were formed out of um, an alliance of former bureaucrats, people who had power in the state by virtue of uh, jobs as, as ministers or as senior uh, officials in ministries, and uh, very often uh, criminal or semi-criminal groups because armed force was needed uh, to actually take control of those uh, assets in many parts uh, of Russia. And that, to my, uh, to my understanding, is the, mean, the meaning of uh, oligarchs. Uh, the oligarchy uh, became very powerful at that point. And I always defined oligarchs as politically influential uh, businessmen, and they are all men. Um, and uh, I've seen I've, I've seen on social media, you know, friends and comrades sort of saying in the last few days, well, you know, it's all very well when it's Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk, we call them billionaires. And, you know, when it's Russia, we call them oligarchs. And, uh, you know, aren't we uh, seeing things through a different uh, set of lenses? And, you know, obviously, for many people in the atmosphere, that that may be true. I'm, I'm sure not the uh, 
the, the uh, very politically discerning uh, listeners to your podcast, David. Uh, but certainly uh, the reason we used to talk about oligarchs in the 1990s was because of that kind of marriage of parts of the old bureaucracy with these uh, criminal or semi-criminal uh, gangs who took control then of large parts of the uh, most effectively revenue generating uh, parts of the economy, which was the oil, gas, uh, metal and minerals uh, companies. And it's in those companies that uh, throughout the post-Soviet period, uh, the wealth of Russia has um, accumulated and they have generated uh, the, they, they completely dominate uh, the export revenues um, that Russia earns from exporting uh, goods to the world market. And essentially, uh, Russia was um, brought into the world capitalist economy in the 1990s and early 2000s as an exporter of those uh, commodities. And I just uh, I checked on these figures last year um, uh, for some research I was doing. And just in, in recent years, so just in the sort of five-year period before the pandemic, um, oil contributed 45% of the total revenues for the export of goods and gas 12%. That's total 57%. And then if you add to that the coal, metals and minerals, there's not a lot, not a lot left. And Russia is not a big exporter of services. Now, if you look at GDP, uh, the share of oil and gas is, is lower. So it's about a quarter. Uh, but it's those export revenues that really tell you the story. And the next chapter, if you like, after the 1990s, so Putin comes in as president uh, on, I think, the 1st of January 2000. And um, I think of this as being a turning point when we go from uh, a weak state uh, which is struggling to uh, we're struggling to get these uh, business groups to pay taxes for a start, uh, and also struggling to retain control over the territory, particularly in uh, Caucasus, with the very strong uh, nationalist movements there. Um, and the, Putin really rep represents an aspiration to and the implementation of a stronger state. So first of all, uh, we have the Second Chechen War, uh, which uh, is in progress when Putin takes over and which he finishes off very quickly and very bloodily with a war in which there were multiple war crimes, uh, destruction of the capital of uh, Chechnya Grozny with uh, carpet bombing, uh, with the, the Western powers completely looking the other way. Um, and the other side of this uh, strong state was uh, the changed relationship with uh, private business. So there was a famous meeting where Putin called all the oligarchs in and said, right, guys, you're going to pay taxes now. Um, the owner of the largest oil company, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, was arrested and spent 10 years in uh, Siberia and then left Russia. And that company was uh, basically confiscated in bits. And uh, it, those oil fields are now in the property of Rosneft, which is the biggest oil company, uh, which is state-owned and headed by Igor Sechin, um, who, like Putin, is a former uh, KGB officer. Now, um, it, what's often come up uh, in the discussions about the character of the capitalist class and the character of the regime is, are they all just from the KGB? And of course, there's a su succession of books been written with Putin looking fierce on the cover and the Kremlin in the background and so on and so on, and uh, you know, playing to this idea that um, it, it, you know, it's it, it's all about the KGB. Now, one of the most recent books, which is which is not in that category, and which is a very very good piece of journalism by Catherine Belton, who works at the Financial Times. Actually, I think, although I don't think she, I don't, I'm not convinced by her analysis, but I think her journalistic investigation of the extent to which those uh, former officers in the security services played a part in the transition from the Soviet system of ownership to capitalism, I actually find very, very convincing. And I mean, I knew bits of that story at the time. I, I wrote about it myself. But I think uh, that with the benefit of hindsight, she's put that together and really uh, put a strong case for there being, you know, if not, if not the exaggerated role of the KGB, which you could read about in the popular press in the West, anyway, a strong hand operating in many of these companies um, at many levels. 
So we then get to the 2000s. Of course, the other thing that's often not appreciated about Putin is that virtually from from the week he took over, uh, the oil price started rising. It was about $20 a barrel when Putin uh, took over, and it doesn't really stop rising until 2008, 2009, the entire two first terms. And this was a time of absolute, um, this was a boom time uh, par excellence, uh, for this new Russian uh, bourgeoisie, uh, those export and revi- export revenues were flowing in. The taxes were, at least to some extent, getting paid. The uh, treasury was under the uh, <clears throat> was under the leadership of the uh, finance minister of that time, Alexei Kudrin, who insisted on establishing this stabilization fund um, and and for holding the revenues outside the country and not bringing them back and. Uh, distributing them to all and sundry, although, you know, with all the yachts and uh, villas and London homes they own, you, you, you know, there was obviously still plenty to spare after he'd taken the taxes. Um, but anyway, uh, we really have a decade of very rapid growth. And at that time, this comes to your question about the sort of character of the capitalist class. And I, I, I was uh, doing quite a lot of uh, writing in just as a financial journalist uh, about Russia. And Lots of I remember lots of meetings with uh, people in the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, other such institutions. Oh, we've got to get the uh, small businesses going. We've got to have uh, ways of um, uh, developing a system of small loans to support small businesses, which didn't really exist uh, because of the way that uh, capitalism had come onto the scene. And uh, they were hopeful. But of course, uh, we then hit the uh, financial crisis of 2008-9. Now, the oil prices stayed high for another three or four years after that. So there's a kind of delayed effect. But actually, if you look at those years between 2009 and 2014, the Russian economy is already stagnating, despite the fact that the the commodity revenues are still rolling in. And this tells you that the uh, all that diversification is not happening. All those schemes to, uh, I mean, there was progress, right? The, in in capitalism's own terms, in uh, the, the 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 banks started to lend money to small businesses and so on. But bang, with two thousand and eight uh, crisis, although the oil revenue still came in, all those loans are then pulled back in. A lot of the banks, as in many other countries, uh, hit the wall and. Uh, Russia began to suffer from that crisis, as did uh, other capitalist countries. Um, And then we come to 2014, and the decision to annex Crimea and to support the uh, so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, which was taken in the Kremlin, and I, I think there's a reason, I think I understand the reason why that happened, but that was a decision which, in terms of the short-term economic interests of the Russian bourgeoisie was an utter disaster. And the other thing I remember from uh, working as a financial journalist or or when I was with the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies and meeting with people in the energy sector is that every Russian business person you met had their head in their hands because the annexation of Crimea absolutely predictably led to a measure of uh, sanctions, which first of all were sanctions uh, through the financial sector. So obviously our um, awful governments here uh, nothing was done about the villas, the, the the London property or anything else, but there were sanctions on uh, loans to Russian companies. And a lot of these companies had uh, lived really on uh, cross-border loans. And suddenly uh, that flow was turned off and a lot of business relationships uh, suddenly grew extremely difficult. And of course, the effect of the sanctions was not only the things that were actually sanctioned, but then caution, which is exercised by bankers everywhere, uh, suddenly uh, comes into the equation and the enthusiasm with which they were throwing money at Russian companies uh, prior to 2008 never, never returns. So uh, the, so I think the, the, you know, an orienting point for people who are trying to kind of get their heads around this is to think of uh, 2014 as a point where um, the political interests of the state, uh, which I would argue is what that decision to annex Crimea and support the so-called republics uh, was all about, the political interests of the state come into direct conflict with the short-term economic interests um, of the bourgeoisie. There's an excellent article, which I can't recommend too highly, by Ilya Matveyev, the uh, economist uh, who's based in St. Petersburg, where he talks about these two uh, trends in uh, Russian foreign policy and contrasts them. And uh, I, I 
I, I think his analysis is absolutely excellent. And this really then is the key to what happened between 2014 and to what's just happened in the last few weeks. Sorry, that's a very long answer to your question, no, that's, David. No, it's, it's very helpful. And it, it, uh, it brings to mind one specific idea that uh, I just read today on, on Facebook, the Indian Marxist uh, Jairus Banaji. Uh, brought up this idea of business capture in relation to Russia and saying, well, in you know countries like the US and Canada, Britain and so on, you might have situations where uh, capitalists capture the regulatory institutions of the state and influence them. Uh, and Benadji was suggesting, well, Russia perhaps is a situation where really it's the other way around and you have elements of the state officialdom raiding and controlling businesses. Can you kind of respond to that as uh, an angle on understanding Russian capitalism? So. So I think what, uh, as I've described, I think when uh, Putin arrived, and uh, as, as I've said, I've certainly been convinced by this book by uh, Catherine Belton that there's, there's a case to be made for him arriving with a considerably more coherent and organized group of these uh, security services officers than was obvious you know, to, to people like me observing from the outside uh, at the time. I think when Putin arrives, I think there is this uh, pull towards um, there's there's not a there's not much of a pull towards state ownership. So it's not that they started nationalizing everything. They did take uh, the assets of Yukos, the big oil company uh, that was owned by Khodorkovsky, uh, back into state ownership effectively by putting it into Rosneft. Although that's not a hundred percent state-owned company. Um, but and don't forget that the oil industry in in, in Russia now is is far less state-owned than in, for example, Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. Um, so uh, it's not about state ownership as such, uh, but I do think there's a, a there's a level of state control, not so much on behalf of the bourgeoisie, but also over the bourgeoisie. And I think um, uh, recalling, uh, you know, what I've understood from socialist theory about uh, authoritarian uh, methods of, of capitalist rule, this is uh, very often uh, the case. And um, of course, Part of this is that Russia is a is in terms of the world economy very much a second rate uh, power. Um, it is a it is subordinate uh, to uh, world markets. It is exporting these uh, raw materials or, or semi processed steel bars or whatever semi processed uh, materials. And the other part of this is the failure uh, to diversify away from. Uh, dependence on these uh, raw materials revenues, uh, the so-called oil curse, which obviously oil economy economists who write about that stuff, that's something that's associated with countries in the global south. And of course, y you can't talk about Russia as a country in the global south. It's uh, in, uh, as uh, Ukrainians are being reminded horribly this week, it is an imperialist country. Um, and it's also uh, a country which, you know, has an economy comparable with uh, other European uh, economies. But in terms of uh, proceeding with that diversification, which was a real discussion in the uh, Russian elite in government and in business throughout the period that I've talked about, uh, that diversification failed. And I think after 2008-09, when the going got tough, it really went off uh, the agenda. And certainly uh, with, with 2014 and uh, the decision to uh, prioritize the attack on uh, Ukraine, um, it, all such aspirations for the Russian economy uh, went out of the window. And it was very much a question of uh, how to survive the uh, storm uh, of the international economic conditions. So I've got a couple of questions connected to the relationship between Russian capitalism and um, the global economy. Uh, and it's particularly, I think, important to think about given Western economic sanctions and so on. So could you start by explaining for listeners uh, to what extent Russia is dependent on foreign trade and investment? So both considering inward and also outward um, trade and investment. So I, I've described the situation with trade, that the, there's this very big export of uh, the, the oil, gas and uh, metals. Um, foreign direct investment was coming in during those boom years but fell sharply following the economic crisis and has been negligible um, since uh, 2014. There's been some uh, foreign investment. So there was a big um, gas project up in the Arctic, which was one of the sort of projects that the government really favoured, which was uh, had investment from Total and from CNPC, the Chinese uh, oil company. Um, and there were also some projects 
uh, out in Siberia that uh, there was some Chinese money invested in, but these uh, levels of investment were not comparable to those uh, during the boom years uh, of the first decade of this uh, century. So um, I don't know, do you want to go on and talk about the sanctions at this point? Yeah, I think that would be good uh, because this is clearly something that's being prioritized in terms of the attack on the central bank and, and so on. So can you say something about what you think the impact is likely to be? So I think that the sanctions that have been uh, announced over the past uh, two weeks amount to a complete rewriting of the uh, relationships, not only between uh, Russia and the Western powers, but I'd say uh, this will, even uh, if, which unfortunately is not going to happen, even if the war were to stop tomorrow, which I'm very sad to say I don't think is a possibility, but uh, even if that did happen, uh, the, the economic map of Europe and the economic relationship between the Western powers and, and not only Russia, but many of the uh, countries on its Western border is changed permanently for years to come. And if we look at the uh, sort of changes that have been made, I mean, I, I, won't, um, I, I won't bore your listeners, uh, David, with a, uh, my, uh, un, in any case, unrepeatable opinions about our own government and its relationship with the oligarchs and the um, extent to which uh, money has poured into the Tory party here from uh, donors who've recently been awarded um, British citizenship, while you know d- uh, more deserving cases are um, basically left to fend for themselves. Um, but if we look at the real sanctions that have been introduced, I mean, first of all, even before the uh, invasion, in response to Putin's speech recognizing these so-called republics, uh, German foreign policy made a, a turn more dramatic than anything since the unification of Germany, uh, with the um, not only the decision to stop this uh, extra gas pipeline, Nord Stream 2, the purpose of which was basically to um, relieve Gazprom, the, the Russian gas company, of the necessity to transit gas through Ukraine, but also to supply uh, weapons to Ukraine in, in large numbers and uh, serious money being put into that. That's, a, that's an absolutely dramatic change uh, from a country which, after all, actually trades with with Russia and uh, always saw the relationship with Russia as being key to its own uh, future and to the future of Europe. Um, then we had the pullout by the oil companies. And again, it's easy on a political level to kind of laugh at their hypocrisy and Shell going off and buying uh, some Russian oil, even after taking uh, their decision to pull out. But nevertheless, uh, these are relationships, uh, and uh, again, I mean, th- this is very. Uh, th- th- if if you were working, earning your money as a financial journalist covering Russia, I mean, this was really central to what I was writing about as a journalist for years and years and years. Was was building up these relationships for BP, the share in Rosneft, that big state-owned oil company, uh, comprises a huge part of their global production. It comprises a huge part of their uh, profits each year, and to walk away from that, uh, apparently it's going to cost them $25 billion, uh, even for BP. I mean, that's a lot of money. And BP's exit was followed very rapidly by Equinor, Shell, and even ExxonMobil. So that is a change in uh, Western policy. Um, These guys do not take their decisions because some politician in some parliament somewhere accuses them of hypocrisy because uh, that's happening anyway, right? They've taken a decision because they believe that the uh, relationship has changed and that the big Western powers are really cutting Russia loose in a way that they've cut Iran loose, in a way that they've cut Venezuela loose, and uh, probably there are other uh, examples, and of course, you know, Russia is a lot bigger uh, and uh, has a lot more uh, clout in Europe than either Iran uh, or Venezuela. So this is a very different uh, situation. And I think whatever is the outcome of, of this uh, horrific uh, conflict in Ukraine, um, we face a situation where uh, the Russian economy um, is condemned to, um, to uh, years of hardship, where Russian people are condemned to uh, years of hardship behind some sort of new iron curtain. I, I 
it, it's horrible to even think about how uh, that's going to unfold in a, a political and a geographical way. But uh, there's no way that Russia can now build on its uh, potentials, that it can um, try to diversify away from oil and gas, which would be anyway essential in this uh, era of climate change. Uh, these things are not going to even crawl to the top of the agenda and uh, to say nothing of the of the living standards of, of Russian people, uh, which are going to uh, suffer terribly. So, uh, yeah, we, we the, these sanctions are different, I think, from sanctions in the past. I mean, just to, then to add a sort of anecdote to that, uh, I was talking to a person who's who's very involved in the oil industry uh, by phone because, you know, wars break out and people phone up. And uh, so somebody I'd known from my life as a, a being involved in energy analysis. And uh, he said, well, the, you know, he, he thinks, and he's a lot closer to all this than I am, that Russian gas exports to Europe will be at a third or a quarter of the level that they're at now uh, in two, three or four years' time. Now, this is a massive, massive change, um, even if that guy turns out to be wrong about that particular fact. I mean, that's the scale of change uh, that we're talking about. So in response, do you think, to this, do you think the Russian government's going to be able to deepen relations with China in a way that would really allow it to offset the impact of the sanctions in some significant way? I think that, you know, if you invited a, a sort of Russian liberal observer of Russian policy, they're all outside the country now, of course. Uh, and, you know, they're all saying on, on Twitter and whatever, as much as I've been able to keep up with, yeah, great, you know, Russia can now become a colony of China. And of course, uh, China's very picky about um, what it uh, takes from Russia and how far it goes in that relationship. I mean, I just know, again, because uh, I, I, I was working and, and keeping in close touch with the uh, gas market, the big uh, gas export project, which was supposed to diversify away. So oil you can sell onto the world market, right? But Russia's gas is primarily exported to Europe and for years uh, Putin and uh, his colleagues were talking about uh, increasing the export trade with China. And China just delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed until they worked out how much gas they wanted, had built a pipeline from Turkmenistan uh, to uh, bring gas from there to China. And Turkmenistan's an enormous uh, producer of gas. And then turned to the Russians and said, OK, we'll take X. And it was quite, you know, quite, a, quite a small amount. And then they uh, faffed around building the pipeline. It took absolutely ages. It was finished just before the pandemic. And some gas has been exported through it. But I, I'm using this as an illustration to show how cautious China was. And of course, I'm sure your listeners are aware of the statements that China has made about the conflict, which have fallen well short of what the Russian government must have hoped uh, would be a strong position of support. And China are clearly keeping, the Chinese government is clearly keeping its options uh, open. Um, and so, yes, I think uh, Russia may uh, or the Russian elite may hope to fall back more on its relationship with China, but I think that's also fraught uh, with uh, problems. And that's why if you had one of those uh, Russian liberal economists on your podcast, that person would most likely be in a, a, a you know, having some hopes for the development of capitalism in the country would uh, be in a, a pit of depression at the moment. Let's shift now and talk more about, about the state and government. Uh, because, again, mainstream media in the Anglosphere makes it sound like it's Putin single-handedly running the show. Uh, so from your perspective, how would you answer the question, who governs Russia? I think because this is a podcast, I'm, I'm allowed to sort of be slightly anecdotal. I, I, I was uh, on the phone to a very old uh, friend and comrade the other day, and the guy said, well, you know, I know that, uh, you know, we don't believe in psychological explanations for things. Uh, but you know, Putin is going slightly crazy from where I'm standing. And uh, I think this goes back to the point uh, we talked about at the very beginning, David, which is why has he done something which was so completely uh, unexpected? And I'll tell you the reasons why I didn't expect it. I did think because of the buildup of troops on the border and uh, all the things that have been going on for the last few months, I did think there was going to be military activity. And I did think it was going to be in the uh, east of the country. And I do remember saying very clearly to people, because people were asking, well, uh, of course, there is a possibility of an all-out invasion, but it's really hard to see what Russia has to gain from that. And it does look as though 
um, Putin, let's, I mean, let's use that word, obviously, yes, there's a team of people, but I mean, it does look like the most titanic miscalculation because it does, as I, I don't understand anything about military things, but I mean, all the kind of analysts and everything I've read from all different sides all says that this looked like a very rapid uh, move on Kiev and Kharkiv and some of the other main uh, cities, uh, which was designed to happen very, very, very quickly. So, for example, I mean, I think all of your listeners will know there's this great big queue of armoured vehicles which uh, seems to have got stuck outside Kiev, and now they're resorting to uh, bombing in order to try to clear the way from it. But apparently, uh, and again, this is something which, you know, we've got to be very careful and use caveats, and none of us know what's going on so well on the ground, and there's a massive amount of disinformation. But even factoring all that in, it does seem that that convoy was sent out basically with kind of three days of supplies. So uh, the plan was to move very, very quickly. It's not that far from the Belarusian border to Kiev. Um, and they've got stuck. Now, um, it, so that fits with the idea of a, a really massive uh, miscalculation. And it does suggest that Putin, to some extent, believes uh, what he said in his speech, and of course, you know, with all politicians, we have to ask whether they actually believe what they say uh, in their speeches. And all this stuff that he said about uh, Ukraine is not a country, um, Ukraine is an artificial construct. I mean, this time he blamed Lenin. Uh, previous times, it's been a slightly different uh, take on the history. And I mean, some literally crazy things about um, for example, particularly his assertion that, uh, which is something you can hear on variants of on Russian television as standard, that there's something uh, which looks very like genocide, were his words uh, going on the east, in the east of Ukraine in respect of um, uh, attacks from the Ukrainian side on the so-called republics. So um, anyway, I don't need them me nor my, my old comrade that I was on the phone with, neither of us think that uh, Putin going crazy is a sufficient explanation. That's, of course, also what you can read in uh, some of the press. Um, but I do think, again, that this, uh, what I spoke about in respect of 2014, where there's a divergence between this political logic uh, and the economic logic, uh, that divergence is, is greater than ever. And if business people had uh, their heads in their hands after 2014, I mean, many, 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 many of them, uh, uh, along, I have to say, with lots of people who've opened their mouths and criticised the government in any way whatsoever and have the means, many, many of those business people have now left the country because they don't see any future for Russian capitalism in the short term. They've all got their, they've all stashed their money off somewhere. Why would they uh, stay? So I think there's a, a, a real schism. There's been a statement calling for a diplomatic solution, uh, which are the sort of words you can use without um, you know, being dragged off to jail, uh, by Lukoil, which is the largest privately owned uh, company. And also, I think, by uh, Rusal, which is uh, the aluminium producing group headed by Oleg Deripaska, who was one of the most uh, loyal uh, to Putin uh, oligarchs. So I think you've got a real, I think you've got a real, on top of everything else, uh, you've got a real split uh, in uh, the Russian elite. And of course, as again, I'm sure all your listeners know, I mean, you've also got tens of thousands of Russians going out in the full knowledge that they're likely to be uh, arrested uh, at a minimum uh, as a punishment for doing so. You've got tens of thousands of Russians going out on the streets to protest and hundreds of thousands signing letters and petitions with their name, with their address, um, and so on and so on. So, uh, you know, in the First World War, it took kind of three, four years to get to the point where you had the sort of anti-war demonstrations we're now seeing uh, in Russia. Now, of course, I again, I don't want to, I don't believe in raising false hopes, because my understanding is that the, the reaction from the Kremlin to that may well be to treat Ukraine in the way that it, together with Bashar al-Assad, did Aleppo or other uh, Syrian cities. And that's a real fear I have for friends and comrades and uh, people I know in Kiev. I think that's entirely possible. They, they've seemed to have, they seem to be laying waste to these uh, smaller population centers just north of Kiev right now. Um, so I don't take any uh, pleasure out of this situation or, or have kind of stars in my eyes about 
the level of opposition in Russia or the depth of this split in the elite. But I, I think that's part of the picture. Just to, to circle back uh, before we go forward, in terms of, of Putin, can you say anything about, again, because of the way that we don't get very much about this in the Western media, but clearly Putin isn't acting solely by himself. There's, there's got to be a Putin group, right, in a sense, I mean, or the faction. Can you shed some light on you know, the people around Putin and the, who, what they would, who they would be and, and so on? There are a lot of people who've come from uh, the security services, and uh, th- that's a factor. Uh, and so I mentioned earlier uh, Igor Sechin, who's the president of Rosneft, and the, the Forbes, I think, runs a sort of poll on who are the really powerful people in Russia. And for the entire period when Mitsu Medvedev was the president and uh, Putin was the prime minister, uh, numbers one and two were Putin and Sechin, respectively. Um, so uh, Sechin is, you know, obviously a very powerful uh, person. Um, however, I think it would be completely silly to kind of think that these, you know, these the security services officers as a group alone uh, are kind of directing everything. Obviously, they have other uh, people with whom uh, they work. Um, we have the Russian parliament. We have the United Russia Party. Don't forget that uh, in Russia, a big part of national politics is about the relationship with the regions. So for the first decade or so of, of Putin's regime, from so from two, the first decade after 2000, you had a strong group of governors led by the governor of uh, Tatarstan, uh, who tried to pressure the Kremlin to get more resources for the regions and so on. Uh, that's changed. The whole uh, system has become much more centralized. An interesting and important caveat there is the special power which is given to the rulers of Chechnya, who are a bunch of uh, violent thugs uh, who are, work closely with the Kremlin, uh, but whose power extends not only through that very small republic, uh, but through uh, the Caucasus more generally. And in fact, the, the Chechen government has been a source of uh, cadres for central government to some extent. Uh, when I was researching something about uh, Russian climate policy last year, uh, one of the guys who's in charge of, of climate policy, uh, is somebody who has no record at all in knowing anything about climate, which is kind of not surprising. And that's pretty much a standard internationally. And uh, But it notably comes from uh, Chechnya. So, you know, Chechnya is making that outsize contribution. So then you've got uh, what you had in that first decade, that golden decade, you had a very strong group of, of liberals and Kudrin was a very good uh, example of that. He was the finance minister. He worked very well with uh, Putin and Medvedev, and then he was uh, dismissed. Uh, but he's still there. He still uh, operates in the Russian uh, political space. I think there are some of those kind of competent bureaucratic managers. So the uh, governor of the of the central bank, uh, Elvira Naibulina, uh, she's there. She's taking a lot of difficult decisions. Uh, she, she's an economist. She's uh, there's a piece in the Financial Times yesterday speculating as to what she must be thinking now. There's no sign that she would be an enthusiastic supporter of this war and any more than uh, others of that sort of uh, background. And then, of course, you've got the Russian parliament. So you've got United Russia, which is the pro-Putin party, which is uh, the, the ruling party. But you've also got, importantly, uh, just Russia. You've got the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, which in the Russian case is an extreme right-wing party led by Vladimir uh, Zhirinovsky. And then you've got just Russia. And you've got, of course, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which used to be the largest, I think probably still is, the largest opposition party. And of course, it was just Russia and the Communist Party of the Russian Federation that built up the relationship with the, I mean, you've got to call them armed militiamen uh, who control the republics in Donetsk and Lukansk, and who then, it was the Communist Party that proposed the motion in parliament, and clearly this was working closely, as they have been doing uh, throughout the Putin period with uh, United Russia. Um, it was they that proposed the motion uh, to recognise uh, the republics, and then that was kind of ushered through parliament in a very sort of performative uh, way. I mean, just for the record, I've got to say, uh, there are two Communist Party deputies who've subsequently come out and said, we don't think that uh, a war can be justified on that basis. Uh, there would be many uh, of my socialist friends and, and radical political friends in Russia who would say, oh, it's a bit late to think of that now. Now, um, 
historian Tony Wood has said that he's described Putin as an ideal arbiter for different interests within the Russian elite. I mean, do you think that's been true up to this point? How would you would you like to add to anything you said before about the relationship between Putin and the capitalist class? I, I think it was true up to 2014. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I wonder, um, well, I wonder what Tony thinks um, about the period since uh, 2014. I, I suspect knowing what an acute observer of Russia he is, I suspect he would also kind of think that uh, 2014 was a big uh, step in that breaking down. But if I may, um, another anecdote, if you like, I I also didn't think that Putin would annex uh, Crimea. So that tells you how much I know. And I went round asking every Russian I met for some years afterwards, if it was appropriate to the conversation, why did he do it? And the best answer I ever received was somebody who who was, you know, not only an acute observer, but an awful lot closer to uh, the whole setup than Tony Wood or I or any foreigner. And uh, that person said because he couldn't afford to go down in history as being the guy who didn't do it. In other words, when Ukraine got into that uh, confused and unstable situation, um, and of course, Ukrainians or some Ukrainians would tell you, well, you know, there was always a plan. It was sitting there in the Ministry of Defense. Yeah, but I mean, they got plans for everything in the Ministry of Defense. The point is, why did they pick on that one at that time? And the answer from uh, this person, uh, which I think is, it was very convincing to me, was that yeah, they, he couldn't afford not to because of the strength of this nationalist uh, lobby. And I think that's the other thing, really, if we're talking about Russian politics, uh, this is what we've got to uh, account for, because the, um, well, you haven't asked me about this, but I'll offer you this opinion anyway. Um, we have to account for why uh, Putin felt it necessary to go ahead in 2014 and why he's felt it necessary to go ahead this year with these uh, measures in Ukraine, which are so clearly damaging, as I've said, to uh, the bourgeoisie in short-term economic terms. And to me, first of all, as that answer uh, from that person uh, implies, first of all, the pressure from uh, the nationalist um, elements in the state, from the militarist elements in the state. But I think also there's another angle, uh, which is very often ignored by people in the West, uh, including uh, those on the left. And that is, it's about social control. Um, We shouldn't forget that um, not only was the uh, 2014 overthrow of Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine, not only was it not a fascist coup, which is just a kind of ridiculous piece of um, of post-Stalinist oversimplification. Um, not only was it not a, um, a a fascist coup, and I mean, I don't think it was a, a kind of, you know, it wasn't all flowery and happy either, but what it was without question was a, a mass movement. And the change of government took place because in the case of Kiev, I mean, half the population was on the street. And I'm talking about on the street for two weeks in the middle of winter. It was very, very cold that winter. I, that of Yes, were there fascists in the crowd? Undoubtedly. Were my socialist friends in the crowd? Undoubtedly. Was everybody in between in the crowd? Undoubtedly. But you cannot describe a change of government which happens by half the population being on the street and huge crowds in other cities mobbing the police stations and uh, breaking into them and so on you cannot describe that as a coup it just doesn't it, it you know it analytically it just doesn't make any sense and then you have a government which again i mean i, I don't think for your listeners we need to kind of go through all these uh, post-Stalinist oversimplifications, but, uh, you know, all this nonsense about a a fascist government and so on. I mean, yes, it was a right-wing government, but the fascists got the same votes in Ukraine as they do in other European countries. They're well below 10%, uh, thank goodness. Of course, there's a difference in Ukraine, which is as soon as the conflict became military, a lot of them got hold of guns, as our socialist friends in Ukraine know uh, to their great cost, and and it's been very difficult for them uh, working in those uh, conditions. But uh, the point is that that event in 2014, I think all the evidence is that seriously worried Moscow. It seriously worried the Kremlin. It seriously worried Putin because, and and this is where the fact that Ukraine is uh, Russia's oldest and nearest colony, just as Ireland is Britain's oldest and nearest colony, this is where that fact becomes relevant, because this was really too close to home. 
the there was a big movement in Russia in 2011-12 uh, in response to uh, the increasing uh, perception, particularly in Moscow, that elections were being fixed by this uh, United Russia machine. Um, but uh, the movement in 2014 in Ukraine obviously dwarfed that. And it did overthrow a government, which uh, really you know, was not things going to plan from Moscow's uh, point of view. So uh, I don't think this is the whole explanation, but I think you have to say that the, the control of the Russian population, the ensuring that things didn't go that way in Russia, and also the, m the mobilizing of national feeling. I mean, there was a horrendous wave of, of nationalism um, after the uh, annexation of Crimea and Putin's ratings went through the roof. I mean, they were always very high because he was seen as somebody who'd restored order and with the oil boom that had been uh, increasing uh, increasing living standards throughout the, that first decade. Um, but with Crimea, although living standards by that time were falling and people were getting worried about the social conditions, uh, it gave him a huge bump uh, in popularity. And there, there are many uh, tales that uh, Russian friends and uh, comrades tell about the, the horrendous kind of level of sort of you know, street-level nationalism, people wearing Putin T-shirts and uh, people standing up in offices and saluting the television, which is you know strange behavior in any country at any time. And uh, these things were going on, and, and that is a method of social control. And uh, we're going to see uh, more of that on all sides, I'm afraid, now under the conditions of the uh, current war. And of course, we will all, as socialists and internationalists, uh, resist that kind of pressure uh, in whatever country uh, we live. I think the the last major question I want to bring up is about Putin's aims, at least the initial aims in attacking Ukraine. And obviously this is speculative, but do you have any thoughts about the initial war aims and what they might now be? I, I think it's now clear that uh, the war was designed to split Ukraine, uh, to split Ukrainian territory. Uh, I had thought uh, prior to the uh, invasion that uh, we would get a push out from the republics. I mean, I think most people I know in Ukraine expected uh, an attempt, for example, to make this land bridge between Crimea and those republics and to try to take more territory in uh, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk uh, regions. I, I think that it's clear the war aims are now greater than that. The declared war aims we're all familiar with, that uh, Ukraine has to uh, demilitarize, that uh, the government is going to, it's not clear what uh, the war aim is with respect to the government. I, I mean, the other thing that I find difficult to understand, I don't have any answer for, is if we look at the very little we know so far about the areas that Russia, that the Russian army has taken under its control in the last week. Um, Kherson, which is a, a Russian-speaking city, by you know vast majority, I don't know what the figure is, but the vast majority of people in Kherson are, are Russian speakers. The mayor is still there. He has told people, you know, don't go around in groups of more than two and don't do this and don't do that and so on and so on and so on. The Ukrainian flag continues to fly above uh, the city hall, but then Yesterday, there were these uh, pictures from the uh, local radio station of these huge uh, demonstrations in the middle of Kherson with uh, Ukrainian flags um, being flown and occupiers go home and so on and so on. Now, I suppose the terrible lesson of Syria, which is the great, in my view, the great defeat of our social movements so far in this century, the terrible lesson of Syria is that no matter the level of popular resistance, you can obliterate it with sufficient uh, violence. Um, that, that's the most horrifying prospect, and I can't uh, discount that. But what I would also say is that that level of popular resistance, which, which is clearly there, and it's not only in Kherson, we're, we're seeing evidence of that uh, all over the place, that's very much part of the uh, equation. And uh, I hope that when we're discussing this in uh, the States, in Canada, in uh, the UK, uh, in other European countries, I, I mean, let's not make the mistake of, of thinking of this in terms of the relationship between governments and armies. No matter how powerful governments and armies are, in the end, people are part of this uh, dynamic, whether those governments and armies uh, like it or not. And I, what I see none of is what, I mean, if you recall in Putin's uh, initial speech on the Thursday when the invasion began, he, he called on Ukrainian people to rise up and overthrow their Nazi oppressors. 
And I, I was speaking with a Ukrainian friend, somebody who lives here who, you know, wouldn't call herself a socialist. And she said, well, yeah, I know people who actually support Russia and who probably welcome Putin. I've got distant relatives. We've all stopped speaking about politics long ago and so on and so on. But actually, so far, we see even in the areas where Russian troops are in control, which are Russian speaking areas, we see absolutely no sign of that happening whatsoever. Whereas we do see uh, signs of this uh, sort of almost people's war sort of reaction uh, to the arrival of the Russian army. So I, all I want to say, David, is again, not to uh, think that it's all going to be flowers and happiness, but just to say that uh, that's the uncertainties with which we're now uh, dealing. Thanks. And just to to wrap up, uh, perhaps you could say something about to your website, People in Nature, because I find it a very valuable resource for learning about things taking place in Russia in terms of protest and social struggle, but also uh, lots of ecological po uh, political issues as well. So could you just uh, tell people a bit about that? Yeah, uh, sure. Thanks, uh, David. Obviously, I hope people will uh, go and have a look. It's, it's peoplenature.org. The di direct links are blocked by Facebook, which is a, a sort of uh, occupational hazard, but I take it as a big compliment from uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been writing the blog uh, for a while. I started it off very much intending to concentrate on ecological issues, fossil fuels, uh, and uh, the whole dynamic in terms of climate. And and really, that changed in 2014 when uh, the events in Ukraine uh, took place. Then I started writing more about uh, Russia and Ukraine because I felt that you know I should share uh, some of the things I know. I translate a fair bit from activists in that uh, part of the world. And yeah, visitors are welcome. And I'm there on WhatsApp and Instagram and Telegram and everything you can imagine. No TikTok videos yet, but uh, who knows what the future will bring. Thanks very much, Simon. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcasts wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.